We're centering here again on the, on the Lord's Prayer, which is right at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, let me just read these few verses from Matthew chapter 6, 9 and 10. It says, therefore, pray like this. Jesus telling his disciples, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, let your name be regarded as holy. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be accomplished as in heaven, so on earth. And these are three petitions there about God's name, about God's kingdom, and about God's will that are really one prayer, one God-focused, God-exalting prayer, that God's name, that God's kingdom, that God's will, uh, these all represent the, really the one great goal of the entire universe. And the goal of the entire universe is, God, is that God would finally and fully occupy his right place in the universe. So when we, when we pray this three-part prayer for God's name and God's kingdom and God's will, we actually, we actually do. We actually, when we recite that together, we take an active role in bringing God's heavenly reign to fruition on the earth. So this is a big deal. It's a big deal for us to say these words, for us to pray these words, for us, for us to ask God to bring them uh, to fruition here. And, and last week, we looked at what it means for God's name to be regarded as holy. And this week, we'll, we'll look at his kingdom and his will, which are really, I take those to be nearly synonymous. And we're going to look specifically at how these things relate to heaven and earth. So your kingdom come, your will be done. I don't know if you remember when we talked about John chapter 4, which seems like it, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 4, which was only two chapters ago, but it seems like it was several ages ago. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus has been baptized. He goes out in the desert. He's tempted by Satan, and he overcomes. And then he begins his ministry, and the first recorded words that we have Jesus saying in his ministry are these. He says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus would preach and teach and speak about the kingdom, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, more than he would speak or teach about any other subject. So it's important for us, since that's the case, it's important for us to understand what in the world Jesus is talking about when he talks about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is another way of talking about God's rule and his reign, the, the effective extension of his authority. And, and so if we read the Bible, we understand that God is sovereign over all things, right? God rules and reigns over everything. And, and like we talked about last week, God is holy. His name is holy. And yet we're praying that his name would be regarded as holy. Our, our prayers aren't going to make God any more holy. And our prayers aren't going to make God any more king or sovereign. But the, the prayer recognizes that there's a problem. The prayer recognizes that there are places in the universe where God isn't treated with reverence. There are places under heaven in which God's reign is not recognized and where his will is not only not carried out, but his will is actually actively resisted. And so this prayer recognizes the rebellion of the human race and the the fallenness of our home that we call planet Earth. So when Jesus came, and, and make, make no mistake, Jesus came as king. When Jesus came as king, it's almost like he was parachuted behind enemy lines. 
And he was dropped into enemy territory, occupied territory. And his arrival changed everything. His arrival on planet Earth as a baby changed everything. But at the same time, not everything changed. People didn't just fall down before him and follow him. People didn't pledge allegiance to this carpenter from Nazareth like they should have. Regardless, he was still able to come on the scene and say the kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king had come. Because the king had come to his people to establish his kingdom, to establish a beachhead in this kingdom of rebellion, in this rebellious land, and and plant the kingdom into the hearts of repentant people who do pledge allegiance to the king. So, So in some senses, God's kingdom is really a slow kingdom in coming. It does not come as fast as we would hope it would. It doesn't come even as fast as sometimes we think it should. It doesn't come with this overwhelming show of military force. Rather, it arrives one heart at a time as rebellious humans happily and willingly turn towards God and repent and submit to King Jesus. You see, God desires not a kingdom of of subjugated peoples. He desires a kingdom of children a kingdom of heirs who have been miraculously, as Eileen read in Colossians 1.13, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, I'd like a little bit of help here. I'm going to put up some pairs up here. I'm going to put the first part of a pair and I'd like you to help me complete the pair. Peanut butter and... If you said raisins or bananas, you're just plain wrong, okay? <laughs> Jelly, thank you. All right, so pretty, did you get it? Okay, honey's all right, honey's good. I'll give you that. All right, salt and pepper, good job. Okay, these are easy, here we go. Fish and good, thank you. Oh, Ridley, you got it, Ridley, nice work. Sorry, I'm a little slow on the uptake here. Okay. Bacon and eggs. Did anybody say something other than eggs? Maple syrup. Okay. Maple syrup. Bacon and eggs. Okay, here we go. Chips and... Now, I would, I'll give you a dip, but salsa is correct. Guacamole is also a close, a close answer. And by, by the way, salt. So everybody said pepper on salt and pepper. I would have also accepted vinegar. Salt and vinegar over here. Okay, that's good. Okay, how about this one? Socks and sandals. Socks and sandals. No, you can go now. You can leave anytime. Okay. Uh, Romeo and? Okay. It's going to, okay, rock and? What? Rock and what? Oh, yeah, rock, scissors, and paper. Okay, but that's not a pair. It's a, it's a trio, so that's a good one. The rock and roll. How about this one? Heaven and? Really? Okay, how many of you said this? Okay. It's okay. You don't have to point people out. It's okay. 
Okay, heaven and hell is, that, is what I was, think we often say, but here's the actual answer, which most people said, so good job. Proud of you, heaven and earth. See, the way in which, the way in which we complete that one actually helps us understand or kind of gives us a picture of what we actually think about the biblical story and what Jesus is praying here. Um, and oftentimes in the narrative that many of us grew up with, heaven is paired with this other place called hell, right? But in the biblical story, the biblical pair that we have from the very beginning is always heaven and earth. And Jesus, when he prays this prayer, when he teaches this prayer to his people, he takes this ancient biblical pair of heaven and hell, and he lays them over the top, or if you will, under, underneath the bottom. He surrounds these three petitions. May your, may your name be regarded as holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. And he wraps them all, and he says, as in heaven, so on earth. And we should think about God's kingdom in this way as, as encompassing all in, all of heaven and earth, and this is how we should pray it. These are the words that unify these things, as in heaven, so on earth. And often when we think about earth, I think this is that narrative that connects heaven and hell so closely. When we think of earth, we think of this present fallen world, right? We think of uh, it's gone to hell in a handbasket, right? The, this is the world in which we now live, and in the future, we'll, we'll, live, we'll leave the earth and we'll go to a different place, We'll either go to heaven or we'll go to hell. And we'll go to heaven, which is this place of happiness and bliss and, and the presence of God, at peace with God, or, or to hell, which is a place of eternal separation from God. Now, I'm not saying that those concepts aren't biblical. They absolutely are. But the, they, are not a, they are not a biblical pair. In our understanding, though, often we think of earth as present and heaven as future. Thankfully, one day we'll go to heaven. But in the, the Bible, heaven and hell are never put together as a pair. Heaven and earth are. So when Jesus speaks about heaven, what he's doing is, is he's, he's rehearsing this ancient biblical idea of a created sphere where God is thought to dwell, or where God dwells. Now, now, obviously, we know that God isn't limited to a place or a time or a space, right? He's, he's what theologians would call omnipresent. He's present everywhere. He's everywhere. And, and heaven, though, is a place where, where God's perfect presence would dwell. It would be the place that, that we would understand that God dwells in all his happy fullness. It's the sphere in which God's name is perfectly honored. It's the sphere in which his kingdom is perfectly established and present. It's the sphere in which his will is gladly obeyed without question, without reservation, without argument, and without delay. And earth, in the biblical picture, is this counterpart to heaven. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They were together. And in the Bible, if heaven is God's realm, then the earth is the sphere where mankind dwells. The earth, if you will, is, is humanity's inheritance. The place, where God, the place where God took creatures that he had created in his image and placed there to rule and to live and to flourish and to represent his reign and his kingdom over this globe. Earth is the inheritance of mankind. We're supposed to be as unique image bearers. We're supposed to dwell here under God's rule and his reign. That has always been God's intention for the earth. Now, when we think of heaven and earth today, we might think heaven, earth, or heaven good, earth 
bad, evil, sinful, right? But that's not even the original picture. The original picture is that heaven and earth were connected and earth was to be a place where God's reign was represented by the humanity that he'd created. Because in the the beginning, heaven and earth were united. So consider the the first chapter of the Bible, if you will, Genesis chapter 1, which I already quoted, but in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, verse 4, when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You see a theme there? You see repetition? Heavens, earth, heavens, earth, heavens, earth. This is what God created, the heavens and the earth. And the original created intention that that the heavens and the earth would be a, a unity. They would be different realms, but closely connected. And those, all the created pairs that we see in, in Genesis chapter 1 echo the diversity that you see between heaven and hell, light and dark, day and night, land and sea, male and female, these created pairs that complement each other in their diversity. And this is the unity of, of heaven and earth, that God creates mankind in his image, places them in this realm of earth, and then gives them dominion over it to rule as his representatives. But even on earth, heaven wasn't very far away. God was present with Adam and Eve in the garden, connected with them in an intimate personal relationship. So we look a little bit later in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22. And and God had put Adam asleep. He'd realized that that there wasn't a helper fit for him. There's a crisis. And he puts Adam to sleep He does surgery on him, pulls out one of his rib, closes the place back up, and it says this, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he, listen to this, he brought her to the man. I love the picture. It's like a wedding ceremony. And here's the father walking the bride to the man, and what does Adam say? The Hebrew, whoa! Right? It's not actually the Hebrew, but pretty close. That's a good translation, okay? It's like, whoa, this is finally bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And God gives the woman to him, gives them to each other as a gift to one another in marriage. And then later on in chapter 3, we we have an echo. This is the chapter of the fall, but we have this echo of how it was to live with the garden when heaven and earth were connected. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So, So it seems like God would come and be with them and walk with them and talk with them. The presence of the Lord God was among the trees of the garden. So, and so very little distance in this creation story, very little distance, if any, exist, existed between the sphere where God dwelt and the sphere where humanity dwelt. Heaven and earth, God and man, are not the same. God doesn't intend for them to be the same. They're separate realities, but they were intended to coexist at peace and in harmony together. But we know how the story goes, and we know that heaven and earth have been torn apart by sin. The the Bible doesn't stop at Genesis 2, unfortunately. The history of mankind is a history that's been indelibly stamped by Genesis chapter 3, when evil and temptation invade in the form of a crafty serpent. The enemy of God comes and tempts Eve to liberate herself from God's rule. And that really was the intention, wasn't it? You will, when you eat the fruit, you will become like God. 
You will see what he sees. You know what he sees. And Adam and Eve take the fruit. And in a sense, what they are saying, like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable, they're saying to God, God, give us our inheritance and allow us to rule it apart from you. Give us the earth and we want to run it like we want to run it. We want to make it our own and do what we want to do. We want to squander our inheritance in a way that makes sense to us. Apart from you. And a broken-hearted God handed them their tarnished inheritance and allowed them to attempt to enjoy it apart from him. And like a bad divorce, heaven and earth were ripped apart and God's name and his kingdom and his will were no longer honored and recognized on earth as they are in heaven. And mankind was banished from the presence of God. They were sent out of the garden to attempt to make their way in a now cursed earth. And and brothers and sisters, men and women, we have not done well. Humanity has not done well. Instead of covering the earth with God's glory as he intended for us to do, we've taken God's beautiful and wonderful gift of this earth and called that we call planet earth and we've covered it with sin and with violence and with desolation and destruction, with, with hatred and strife and with death. Far from, from flourishing and improving the earth, we've, we've steered it completely away from God and heaven and earth have been rent asunder. But here's the beauty of the story is that it doesn't stop there either. Heaven and earth have been reclaimed by Jesus. God God wasn't content to let this state of affairs endure for very long or even forever. And almost immediately he launches a plan to reunite heaven and earth. And, And he does it through people such as Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, and Ruth, and David, and Mary, and and eventually and ultimately Jesus. And God has been working in, in his people restoration and redemption on planet Earth for millennia. So, so when Jesus appears on the scene, when he, when he comes and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that whole story is in his mind. That's, that whole story is in the background, that heaven and earth have been broken asunder by our rebellion, and he has come to put them back together again. It's called the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He talked about it more than he talked about anything else. He taught his disciples what it meant to live in the kingdom. He taught taught them what it meant to to pray the kingdom, what what it was like to work for the kingdom of heaven and what what what, what the original intention for heaven and earth was intended to be. And the apostle Paul ends up painting this picture perfectly when he wrote about Jesus He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Where? In heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you see what God is doing in Jesus Christ? 
He's reuniting all things in heaven and on earth. And he intends, as Ephesians 1 tells us, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. And not only does Jesus' work reunite heaven and earth, but Jesus is the rightful king who claims heaven and earth as his own. And you've heard this a hundred times, but think about it in this context. All authority where? In heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says, Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. All authority in heaven and earth is Christ. And ultimately, all of heaven and earth will find their rightful place under the benevolent kingship of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2. For this reason, God has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, so the restoration of all things, the reunion of heaven and earth begins with the coming of Christ or finds its culmination rather with the coming of Christ and it finds its power in the redemptive reconciling work of the cross. But it doesn't end there doesn't end at the cross. We haven't seen the end of the story yet. We've heard whispers of it. We've, we've, we've been told images of it. We have pictures in our minds of it, but ultimately heaven and earth will be reunited in the new creation and it will blow our minds what it is like. The work Jesus began on the cross was a work of reconciliation. He, he's reconciled God and man, but he also intends to reconcile and liberate the creation. Romans chapter 8, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, this earth was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And the creation waits just as we, the children of God, await this restoration, this ultimate liberation of creation, which culminates with what the scriptures call a new heaven and a new earth. So Revelation chapter 21. And this is what John sees at the end of this book, he sees a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first, first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. He says, coming down out of heaven, out of the sky, comes this new city from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And the picture we have there in Revelation 21 is a picture of heaven and earth once again reuniting and God coming to walk amongst and be amongst his people. It's not that we're being taken out of the earth and, and going to some ethereal place to sit on clouds and play harps for eternity. It's that heaven is coming down to the earth, the new Jerusalem to the earth, the two being restored and reconciled forever and us being with God and walking with God on a new heavens and in a new earth, refreshed, cleansed, and renewed. So what does all this have to do with the Lord's Prayer? 
Let's return again to Matthew 6, 9, and 10. Therefore, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, let your name be regarded as holy. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be accomplished as in heaven, so on earth. And it's this prayer that we know that things aren't right. Things are not as they should be. God's name isn't regarded as holy. His kingdom isn't here fully. His will is, is, is often pushed back on and resisted. And so we pray that heaven and earth would come closer and closer every day. And allow me just to give you these free, three takeaways that Jesus invites us in this prayer to pray for the kingdom to spread. And this is a present tense, a here and now prayer that the kingdom would spread person to person from one human heart to the other, that women and men who are created in God's image would abandon their rebellion and would return to God and willingly submit to their creator, to their savior, to their king. And God has called us his people, his children. He's called us and given us the tremendous privilege of taking part in that kingdom spread on the earth through two things. The first one is prayer. He tells us to pray for that to happen. So we pray for the persecuted church. We pray for the first nations in Canada that Cliff and Cheryl are working with. We pray that the kingdom would come in the hearts of our neighbors across the street, in the hearts of our co-workers. We pray that the kingdom would spread and we also do the work of evangelism. That's what evangelism is. It's spreading the kingdom in this world. Second, Jesus invites us to pray for the kingdom's coming. And this is a future tense prayer, a future oriented prayer. It's a prayer that a prayer that we pray for the reuniting of what has been torn apart by sin. It's it's praying forward into a future that God has already guaranteed. Which feels a little bit weird. That's why prayer is so mysterious, right? Like, okay, God, you've already promised you'll do this. Why do we have to mess around with it? Why do you need us to ask for it? But he calls us and gives us the privilege again to step into it. The the early church picked up an Aramaic phrase that they would pray often. It was the word Maranatha. Have you heard that? We prayed it before, and it literally just means, come, Lord. And so we pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Would you come? Would you set all things right? Would you reunite heaven and earth? Would your will be done? Your, your, Your name be holy and your kingdom come. And then finally, I just want to point out that Jesus invites us to pray, period. That's a big deal, actually. When you think that Jesus actually invites us to take part in what he's doing in the world. Not just pray for little things, which we'll get to next week. Not just pray for the things that we need, but to pray for big kingdom world-shattering, world-shaking kinds of things. It's a privilege and a responsibility. And yet often what we do with prayer is we, we neglect it. We place it on the shelf as kind of a relic. We treat it as boring or irrelevant. And that is a lie from the devil. Prayer is, is nothing like that. Prayer is not boring. Prayer is not irrelevant. And it should not be neglected by, by God's children who have been called to come into his presence and ask for these things. Jesus is inviting us to partner with him in his quest for world domination. That's kind of a big deal. So let's pray. 
Let's pray that as a people. Let's be co-workers with him in the spreading of his kingdom because he wants us to help him usher in his kingdom. And we do this initially. We do this maybe even primarily through prayer. And we'll find ultimately, I think, that as we pray this prayer, as we pray Jesus' heart in these ways, we will find these things actually happening in our hearts. We'll find in our heart that his name gets honored that we want to honor his name. We'll find in our heart that his kingdom is expanding and taking up more room in our hearts and our lives. And we'll find that his will is done in our lives. See, this is a prayer that doesn't just get prayed. This is a prayer that Jesus intends for us to live. And sometimes we pray it with our lives. And as we pray, it should change us. And as it changes us, it will change the world. And before we close in prayer this morning, I want to invite you to the communion table. And here's what I want you to think about as we come and remember the sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice of the death of our King on the cross, which we've talked about quite a bit this morning. But if we think about the cross being the center of this reconciling work that God is doing between heaven and earth, he starts with us. He reconciles us to us through the, through the giving of his body. And so at the, on the night he was betrayed, he sat with his disciples and he said, take this bread and eat it for it is my body broken for you. And then he passes the cup around and he has them drink and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take it. And as often as you do this, he says, as often as you do this, you will proclaim my death. You will look backwards. You will remember and you will proclaim my death. You will remember the gospel. You remember my reconciling work on your behalf. But you will also proclaim it until I come. And so when we take this meal together, when we partake of these elements, we not only remember the cross, we're not only grateful for the cross, we not only remember what he has done in saving us, but we look forward to that day when we will sit with him in the kingdom at his wedding feast, eating and rejoicing with him because all things have been reconciled to our king. So can you come to the meal with that in mind today? Looking forward to that meal that we will share with each other and with him forever. And if you've never, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never proclaimed him as king, if you've never trusted him in faith, if you've, if you've never trusted him and his sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins, I would ask you not to take of the meal this morning, but I would ask you to pray. And perhaps God is doing something in your heart this morning. Perhaps he's, he's, he's causing questions to arise. Or perhaps he's, he's, making you, uh, he's, he's drawing you towards himself in faith. I don't know what he's doing in you this morning. I don't know what's happening in you. But if you have not put your faith in Jesus this morning, I would invite you to do so. Because today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can get on this kingdom train with with Jesus as he makes all things right, as he makes all things new. And if God is doing that in you today, if if he's calling you to respond to him in faith, I would encourage you to talk to somebody. Come talk to me. Talk to somebody next to you and tell them. Talk to them. Ask them questions. Because God is drawing a people to himself and making really a new heavens and a new earth. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come, as we take of this meal, as we remember 
you and what you did on the cross thousands of years ago. We remember that it was a king who was crucified. We remember it was the king who was crucified by his own, who was, who was tossed out by his own, who was refused and betrayed and, and doubted and denied by his own. And we confess that that includes us. We are those who have rejected your rule and your, your kingship, and we have tried to create our own kingdoms. We've tried to take things in our own hands in our life, and we confess today that it hasn't worked. So Jesus, give us a picture of your kingdom. Give us a picture of the reconciliation that you are bringing. Give us a picture of what we're praying when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus, if there are those in the room that you're calling to yourself today, would you call them and draw them and may they respond in faith and receive this free gift of salvation and friendship with God. Jesus, we pray all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.